The reading today is uh, from the sixth chapter of Deuteronomy. So Deuteronomy chapter 6, page 185 in your pew Bibles. These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you, and so that you may enjoy long life. Hear, Israel, and be careful to obey so that it may go well with you, and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. When the Lord your God brings you into the land he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, to give you a land with large flourishing cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant, then, when you eat and are satisfied, Be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Fear the Lord your God, serve him only, and take your oaths in his name. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the peoples around you. For the Lord your God who is among you is a jealous God, and his anger will burn against you, and he will destroy you from the face of the land. Do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massa. Be sure to keep the commands of the Lord your God and the stipulations and decrees he has given you. Do what is right and good in the Lord's sight so that it may go well with you and you may go in and take over the good land that the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors, thrusting out all your enemies before you as the Lord said. In the future, when your son asks you, what is the meaning of the stipulations, decrees and laws the Lord our God has commanded you, tell him, we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Before our eyes, the Lord sent signs and wonders, great and terrible, on Egypt and Pharaoh and his whole household. But he brought us out from there to bring us in and gave us the, and give us the land that he promised on oath to our ancestors. The Lord commanded us to obey all these decrees and to fear the Lord our God so that we might always prosper and be kept alive, as is the case today. And if we are careful to obey all this law before the Lord our God, as he has commanded us, that will be our righteousness. Wonderful. Thank you, Jill. Uh, It'd be great if you could keep that passage in the Bibles open as we think about what God's going to teach us this morning. Uh, And before um, we do anything else, let's pray. Let's pray to God. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we don't have to guess what you are like, but you tell us clearly. 
Lord, we pray that you would speak to each one of us today. We pray that we would all go away from uh, this church service more in love with you and acknowledging who you are and what you have done for each one of us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Great. Well, I thought I'd start with a question this morning as, as we think about this topic of what it means to have our best life now. And I wonder if you are someone who finds it tempting to compare parts of your life to other people's lives. Do you perhaps uh, look at your garden and look at your neighbor's garden and think, oh, actually, yeah, mine's looking quite nice today, isn't it? And there's, there's a little sense of pride. Or do you perhaps compare the kind of work that you do and, and you look at your colleagues' work and there are good weeks when you feel that you're doing better than your colleagues and bad weeks when you feel you're not doing as good. Perhaps it's, it affects your parenting. We think about Mothering Sunday today and, and how we think about how we're raising our children. We look at other families or maybe stuff on the TV and think, oh yeah, I'm glad I'm not like them. I think there's all sorts of ways, aren't there, that we can compare bits of our lives with other people's lives. And, and I think one of the reasons we do this is that all of us, at the end of the day, we want to think that we are living the best life possible. Otherwise, it can be heartbreaking. Well, the Bible has, has a lot to say about what it means to live our best life now. And actually, Jesus in the New Testament puts it really clearly. He says this in John 10, verse 10. He says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Jesus is talking about those people who, who trust and, and love him. That he has come that they may have life and life to the full. Life in all its fullness. A hundred percent life. Nothing held back. Very clearly, the Bible says, if you want the best life, don't worry about comparing yourselves with your neighbors or friends or family, whoever. If you want the best life, follow Jesus. That is the best life possible, becoming a Christian. Now, I could just stop it there and then go and, go and sit down. We get on with the rest of the service. But I think, actually, what we've just read here in Deuteronomy 6, it fleshes that whole idea out even further. And if you're a bit unconvinced at the moment, then we'll listen to what God's Word has to say about how we experience the best life now. And we're going to see three things in this passage. Firstly, we're going to think about the past, then about the present, and then about the future. In the past, we're going to think about remembering where we've come from. And the present, we're going to think about how, how we prepare and face the battles we experience today. And in the future, we're going to think about how we can fix our eyes on the future. But firstly then, let's think about remembering where we've come from. Um, and we see this, if you've closed uh, your Bibles, open them back up again to Deuteronomy chapter 6, so we can see what we're looking at. Um, and we start, uh, this passage starts by describing God's people moving to a new land. They're remembering where they've come from, and they're excited about a new land. We see this in verse 1. This is Moses speaking. He says, these are the commands, decrees, and the laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. So God has used Moses, his servant, to, to bring God's people out of slavery in Egypt, where they've been slaves to Pharaoh. And they've been slaves there for 400 years, and they are ready for a new start. And then Moses leads them out, but they've been walking around the wilderness, around the desert for another 40 years, and they are really ready for a new start. Not only physically, not only geographically, they're excited about this promise of, of entering this new land, as we saw in the passage, a land flowing with milk and honey, a, a place where life is good, 
but also physically they're ready for a new start. So spiritually they're ready for a new start as well. You see, all the slavery in Egypt, as, as horrible it was physically, it was, it was kind of like a metaphor for all the, the spiritual slavery that people experience. But God has rescued them out of Egypt and he's bringing them into this new land. He's getting them ready by setting down some rules. Rules so that their life would be the best they can be. He's already rescued them and now he's going to give them the rules to make sure they start in the best possible way. And and some people think rules are restrictive. Some people think rules are bad and made to be broken. But there are occasions, aren't there, where rules are good. I mean, think about rules in relationships. Rules are there to protect relationships. For example, rules in in marriage or in family or in parenting or in friendship. There's all sorts of rules, aren't there? And they're not meant to be restrictive, but they're meant to be there to protect. Rules are there to to protect that love. And you see, not only is this um, worth thinking about for, for these people living thousands of years ago, but it's relevant for Christians today because we too are people who have moved from one land of slavery into this land that God has promised. This land of of darkness where we do not see what God is like and we do not know how to relate to him and there's this broken relationship into this light. Jesus has, has brought us into that new place. He's restored that relationship with us. If you are a Christian today, if you are trusting Jesus, then he has sorted that relationship out with you and God. And as a result, Christians think differently about rules. This is why we can read a passage like this and see how it applies to our life. Christians think differently about God's rules. They they see that these aren't set for us to try and earn God's love. Rules in a relationship don't work like that, do they? No, they are there to help protect that relationship. So that we know the kind of life we should be living that pleases God. Not to earn his love, but because we've got it. That's how Christian thinks about, Christians think about commands in the Bible. Not to earn God's love, but because we've been given it as a gift and we want to show God how much we love him. But this also impacts how we understand the past. As we're thinking about the past, this impacts how we think about it. Lots of people um, view the past with all sorts of regret. Maybe something that you've done. Maybe something that's been done to you. Maybe there's a sense of, of shame or or sorrow, or or fear about the past. The great news about being a Christian is those things that happen in the past no longer define you. They are gone. The thing that defines a Christian about the past isn't what we have done, but it's about what God has done, bringing us into his kingdom, into a restored relationship with him. So that's the first thing. As we remember where we've come from, we see that we've, we've moved to a new land like God's people all those hundreds of years ago. And secondly, because we've moved to this new land, we need not to forget what he's done. It's so easy to forget what God has done. And, and he warns his people here in verses 10 and 12. It says this, When the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you, And then it continues, verse 12, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You see, the people who this was being spoken to originally had experienced in their lifetime the most incredible act of salvation. These miraculous signs and wonders that you can read about in the second book of the Bible in Exodus. 
about how God brought his people out of slavery, how he parted the Red Sea, how he led them in a pillar of fire and smoke. Yet these people are tempted to forget what God has done. It's so easy. And you see the exodus and this story of what God has done spread to the surrounding nations. So as you keep on reading the Old Testament, you discover more and more of the nations who have heard about what God has done and they are scared. They say, this God is really powerful. There is no one in the whole universe like him. But these people are tempted to forget and so are we. You see, the exodus in the Old Testament, it was God's big picture of salvation, God's big picture of rescuing his people. But as amazing and as great as it was, actually, there was still a greater story to come, a greater salvation to come. Because as we'll see in a minute, there's still a problem left here with the people. You see, as bad as the slavery was in Egypt, the Bible also tells us that there's a much bigger, a much more dangerous, sometimes a much more subtle slavery that exists. And the Bible calls that sin. Now, I, I don't know how, how you would understand or, or define sin. Um, recently, there's been an ice cream advert that talks about this ice cream. It's so good, it's sinful. It makes it sound a bit kind of playful and fun. But when the Bible's talking about sin, it's not talking about something that's playful and fun. It's talking about Rejecting God, saying, no, I don't want you. I don't want anything to do with you. I'm going to live life my own way. There's nothing fun or or glamorous about turning your face away from God who's made everything and who loves us. But that's what sin is. And as we're thinking about the best life possible... On our own, I, say, I know I speak for myself, if, if I was to imagine on my own what my best life would be, it would never be as good as what God wants my best life to be. Certainly for myself, but also for my friends and family around me, because sin has so marred our, our efforts and, and the way that we think about life that we would never be living the kind of life that would be the best possible, the kind of life that God wants us to live in a relationship with him. God's idea is far better than mine. But the good news is that God has come in Jesus Christ to make that possible. To deal with our our sin. To pay the price for it. So that we might have that restored relationship. So that we might experience the best life now. It says in the Bible, Jesus' words, he says that he came as a ransom. Now what is a ransom? A ransom is a payment, isn't it? You think about when one of those films where, where someone pays a ransom so that someone may go free. Well, that's what Jesus described that he came to do. He came as a ransom to free us from, from sin and from judgment so that we might be free and live the best life today. But it's so easy to forget that. I find that I have to remind myself often daily about what God has done. And so it was the case too with God's people these hundreds of years ago. They are quick to forget and they are quick to stop thanking God. Because if you forget what God has done, there's no chance you're going to be thanking him. Um, G.K. Chesterton, a famous writer of the last century, wrote this. He says, when it comes to life, the critical thing is whether you take things for granted or whether you take them with gratitude. I think he's onto something. Whether you take them for granted, or whether you take them with gratitude, I'm far more likely to take things for granted. Whether that's th- basic things like food, or, or water, or uh, a roof over my head. 
but so much more the things that God has done for me. We're also prone to take these things for granted as opposed to taking them with gratitude, with thankfulness for what God has done for us. We need to remind ourselves daily what God has done so we don't forget. We need to remind each other. That's why it's good that we come along to church. So each week we are being reminded of what God has done for us. If you're here and you're a Christian, you need to remember the past. Not not the things that you felt may have once defined you, but what God has done in the past. That now defines who you are. But if you're here, maybe you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. Well, we're approaching Easter. It's a great time to learn as we think about Jesus' death and resurrection. So please do come back. Or if you're visiting us, please do visit your nearest church to find out more about who this Jesus is. So that's thinking about the past. Let's go on to think about today and the present. And we're going to call facing the battle today. And we have three different battles at least described in this passage. They're not the kind of the, the battles you may be thinking of, but they are what's being described is a need to prepare for what is to come when God's people go into this new land. Um, and we see them talked about firstly as battles on the outside. So if we look down at verses 14 and 15, it says this. The command is, do not follow other gods, the gods of the peoples around you. For the Lord your God who is among you is a jealous God and his anger will burn against you and he will destroy you from the face of the land. Now there's there's some controversy in here perhaps. There's some big issues. I don't know what you make of some of these words. I haven't got time to go over all of them, but what I want you to see is the central point to what is being said here. And that is about the kind of care that God shows towards those who love him. God's care for his people is a jealous care. It is a jealous love. I wonder if that fits your picture of what you think God is like, that he loves you jealously. Not as the kind of jealousy that you might see if you've got a toddler, where um, one child has got a toy and as soon as this other child sees it, they want it, not because they wanted it, but because the other ones have got it and they just want to snatch it. That's not the kind of jealousy it's describing. The kind of jealousy that is being described here is like that of a husband towards their wife who jealously loves them, who doesn't want anyone else to, to take that wife away from them or then the wife to, to go off with another lover. That is the kind of love that is being described that God shows towards his people. Does that fit with your picture of what God's love is like? It is like a faithful husband. And as a result, God cares about his people trying to go off after other lovers or after other gods. Because that's what it's being described as here. It is, it was like spiritual adultery going after another god. It won't satisfy. It will only end in disappointment and upset. And at the time, God's people were tempted to do this in a particular way. As they were going to go into this land, there would be all these other nations around them, and they would be worshipping different gods. And, and some of the kind of um, worship that that would involve at the time was actually horrific. Some of the gods were, were worshipped through child sacrifice. Children burnt alive, horrific stuff. Nothing glamorous here about worshipping these false gods. But it would have been very easy and very tempting for God's people at the time to, to, create, to give in to those practices of the nations around them. And the sad thing is we read the rest of the Old Testament, we see on occasions they do. They do give in to those ways and worshipping those false gods. 
and caving into that culture around them. It's very easy. It's the easier route, but it is not the good one, and it is not the one where best life is found. Now, I know we're we're 21st century people, we're enlightened, uh, and we, we wouldn't bow down to little gods made of stone or wood or anything like that. But it starts to hit home when we think about what these gods, those false gods, represented. They weren't just about the god of of lightning or god of the underworld, stuff like that. These gods represented wealth, prosperity, fertility, success, health. All of a sudden, it begins to feel a lot more modern and up-to-date, doesn't it? Those are the kind of false gods. Building your life on attaining this one thing. If I just get this one thing, then everything will be okay. That's what worshipping those gods hundreds of years ago was like. And that's still what it's like today. We can make gods out of those things. Make them the the number one unnegotiable thing in our life. Our health, our success, our fertility, our wealth. We are just as tempted. So these battles on the outside. Let's bring it a bit closer and think about preparing for battles in our families. So we see this in uh, verses 7. Um, so this is this command to God's people. It says, talking about all the commands, impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. This is so good to read at a baptism. It's, it's really appropriate because it's setting out the kind of principles for how we raise our children to know and love God, to remember what God has done in the past for us. There was a need for families to prepare well. It's a lovely picture describing about whatever you are doing, keep that conversation going with your children about who God is and what he has done and what it means to follow him. Now is the time. If you've got young children, you think, oh, my children look sweet and they'd never do anything wrong. There's probably not many parents who think that anyway, is there? <laughs> but there might be. You might be the one parent. But I can assure you, I've been a child before, and I tell you, they grow out of it. You see, our children need to know what God has done and what it means to live as a result. If we want them to have the best life possible, we want that for our children, don't we? We want our children to have the best life. And there's all sorts of resources that can help us. You go down the road or or, um, find a a local bookshop, Christian bookshop or, or, or something online. There's so many good resources to help us as families to be um, bringing our children up. We've, we've been using one that goes for a little page, a little devotional each day, and we use that at breakfast. It takes about five minutes. And it gets us as a family talking about who God is and what he has done. So we see there's battles on the outside. It gets a bit closer. We've got to prepare for battles in our families. And then thirdly, as we think about today, there's battles on the inside. We look at verse 16. It says this briefly, Do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massa. Now, how does that affect me? How does that relate to battles on the inside? Well, what it's describing is an event back in Exodus where God, um, God's people put God to the test. That even though they'd been rescued out of slavery, out of Egypt, they were still distrustful of the fact whether God could provide food and drink for them, even though they'd seen such miraculous things. There was a deep distrust about what God was like and whether he would come through for them. Even though they'd seen this miraculous rescue. Now this is different to what what we might call 
a bit of doubt. All Christians have doubt from time to time. There's, there's a helpful kind of doubt that, that pushes you to find out more. I want to know more. I want to, I want to see more of the evidence about who Jesus is and, and what it meant that he died and, and rose again. I want to find out more. That, that's kind of helpful. This isn't that. This is a deep distrust of what God is like. A deep distrust of God's character that he will not come through for us. He cannot be relied upon. Do you see the difference? You see, even though God's people have been rescued out of slavery, we see that there is still a need for a greater rescue that the Exodus actually didn't achieve. It's almost like this. Yes, the Exodus achieved getting the people out of slavery, but what is still needed is is getting the slavery out of the people. Do you see the difference? These people are not free yet. They are still just as tempted to put God to the test, to distrust him. And we are not so dissimilar. We are not free from that kind of thinking. I wonder if you ever see that kind of distrust in your own heart. There's a need that, there's a, there's a sense we need to keep on praying and asking God that he would keep our hearts soft to him. Fleshy and soft, not, not hardened and bitter and distrustful of God. But the good news is that these battles, whether on the outside or on the family or on the inside, they won't be there forever. The good news is in the future. So thirdly then, we fix our eyes on the future. Fix our eyes on the future. And there's two reasons why we can do this. The first reason is given in verse 23, and it's because God is in control of the future. It says this, but he, that's talking about God, but he brought us out from there to bring us in and give us the land he promised on oath to our ancestors. What's being said here is that God's people needed to learn from the past so that they could trust God for the future. And we see that God is in complete control. That's why he can be trusted. So he's made this promise all these hundreds of years ago, before this was written, that God's people would come into this promised land. But not only was he able to make that promise, he made it happen. He brought them out of where they were, and he was going to bring them in. God's faithfulness in the past means that we can trust him for the future, because God is in control of it. He's the same one who makes promises and is able to back that up as well. This is such a great truth. It means that then there doesn't need to be any more anxiety about what the future holds, because God is in control of it. Whatever may happen, God is in control of it. And because God is in control, it means that we can have a better life now. And we can know what the Bible calls a peace beyond all understanding. If you long for that kind of freedom from anxiety about what the future holds, then look at what it says here, that that God can be trusted. He is in control. And he loves us with that jealous love. And last of all then, I just want to bring us to to the last uh, sentence in this. So let's flip over the page. And we're going to look at page 25, and particularly one word in it. It says this, and if we are careful to obey all this law before the Lord our God, as he has commanded us, that will be our righteousness. Now, I want to pick up on that word at the end, righteousness. It, picks, it comes up all times again in the Bible, and, and it's an incredible word. In one sense, it's a declaration of, of a position. Someone stands, and they have been declared righteous. 
They are perfectly upstanding. They are a good citizen. They have been declared righteous. But there's also a sense that there's a relational aspect to it as well. It's not just a cold, you are righteous. But there's a relational aspect to it there. That the relationship between that person and God is is perfect. It is fixed. It is secure. You see, that is the good news. That there can be this righteousness for all of us. A declaration that we are made, put in the right with God. But there's also some bad news as well. Because what does it say before that? It says, if we are careful to obey all this law before the Lord our God, that will be our righteousness. So there's good news there, but there's bad news because none of us are ever going to obey God's law perfectly. We can't, we've already seen that, that, that sin affects us to such a deep degree that it's not possible for us to be this perfect, righteous person. So what do we do about it? Well, this word righteousness comes to mean loving God and loving others perfectly, and none of us will ever be able to do that. But there has been one who has done it. The Bible talks of one person who has this perfect righteousness, who has always loved God fully and loved his neighbor as himself. And that person is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And the reason why this is good news is because Christ is willing to give his righteousness away to all those who would trust him. Because when Jesus died at the cross, he made that possible. He takes the mess in our life, our, if we call it our unrighteousness, the way that we can't live up to that standard of living, of loving God and loving others perfectly, even if we wanted to. We can't do it. He takes that mess from us and he gives us his perfect righteousness, his spotless credentials. That means it's no more about us trying to to live that life perfectly and hoping at the end of the day, do you know what, I'm hoping I've been good enough to get into heaven or I compare myself to some of the really bad people in the world. Well, I'm not as bad on them, so on balance, I probably should get to heaven. No, only perfect righteousness will enable us to get there and be in a relationship with God, but the good news is Jesus is willing to give it to us. And once you realize this, and once you, you, you believe this and trust this and make that your life, you begin to see it's not so much about me trying to think about how I can get my best life now on my own, but it's been given to me, the best life possible, and an eternity with a loving God. Life in all its fullness, as Jesus said, has been given to us. You see, Jesus Christ gave up his life at the cross He gave up his closeness to his father, his heavenly father, so that you might have the best life in him today. And not just for today, but for tomorrow, and next week, and next year, and forever into eternity. So if you want your best life today, come to Jesus, and he will be glad to give it to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can think about the past without being crushed. We can remember it's about what you have done, not about what we have done. Thank you that by your spirit, you help us to face these battles today outside wherever the pressures we might experience in culture or in our families. Lord, help us to raise our families to know and love you. And Lord, 
please help us with these battles inside. Help us not to distrust you, but to trust you. Lord, please help us to fix our eyes on the future and to to know that we have Christ's righteousness. If that's a new thing for us today, Lord, help us to receive that gift, that gift of eternal life. And Lord, as we go out into the world, we pray that we might live lives that bring you glory as we live out this wonderful news. In Jesus' name, amen.